Six days ago, the NCAA tournament began with 68 teams. Well, now we are down to 16. The Sweet 16 kicks off on Saturday and will continue through Sunday. And then by Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, we will have our final four. And I'll recap what transpired in the second round, including some pretty big success in the Big East while looking around the rest of the tournament. Another conference has proven to be a pretty big flop. I'll cover that and more here on this episode of the Igloo. Season 2, episode 55, episode number 120 on tap. Welcome inside, y'all, and the Big East, not a great first round, a 2-2 record, but the second round treated them real nice as both remaining teams punched their tickets to the Sweet 16. So let's start with, first and foremost, on Sunday, Villanova taking on 13th-seeded North Texas. The Mean Green were seeking their first Sweet 16 appearance in program history. Villanova trying to get back for the first time since 2018 after they had missed it in their last tournament appearance, a game in which they'll remember uh, for a while, a game in which they got obliterated by Carson Edwards and Purdue. But this would be a different story on Sunday. Villanova, they got off to a hot start. And really, they would not look back after North Texas started off pretty well. Villanova would take the lead 23-21 after, well, on a big-time three by Chris Archidiacono. <coughs> bless um, bless me. Uh, aller- when it comes to the spring, by the way, allergy season comes back. That's my least favorite thing of spring. Weather's been great. I've been loving that. But man, the allergies have been kicking my butt. Speaking of kicking butts, after Villanova took that lead by Chris Archidiakono's three, they wouldn't look back and they kicked North Texas's butt. Matter of fact, North Texas, they took their biggest lead of the game early in the first half as they led... Actually, no, they led by eight at one point. So I misspoke on that. So the Mean Green, they had an eight-point lead. Trying to find where that was. Apparently ESPN doesn't know how to do math, I guess. Maybe not. I don't know. But North Texas at one point led by eight. But if I'm if I'm looking at this straight, then they haven't they did not lead by eight at any point. Actually, no, they did. I, I misspoke. It was twenty-one to thirteen at the eleven thirty-two mark of the first half. Villanova responded with a thirty-four to six run to go from down eight to up twenty at the half, forty-seven to twenty-seven, and Nova they led by as many as twenty-six. And cruised 
to an 84-61 victory. And it was a very balanced team effort. Jeremiah Robinson Earl, another brilliant game. This time he was very well-rounded. 18 points, 6 boards, 6 assists. 8 of 14 from the field, 2 of 5 from 3. And the story of this game, Villanova just shot the ball extremely well. 55% from the floor, 50% even from 3. Jermaine Samuels with 15 points and 9 rebounds in 30 minutes. 5 for 9 from the floor, 1 for 4 from 3. Justin Moore, 6 for 12 from the field, 2 for 5 from distance. 15 points, 4 boards, 5 assists. Chris Archidiakono only played 13 minutes, but he came up with two huge three-pointers. And Caleb Daniels, 3 for 6 from 3, 4 for 7 from the field, 11 points. And then off the bench, Cole Swider knocked down three three-pointers in 19 minutes. Eric Dixon with four points, knocked down his only field goal attempt of the game, which was a three. Only played eight minutes, and then Brian Antoine, who played 22 minutes, finished with six points, two for three from the floor, one of two from three as Nova. Again, they shot lights out, 55% and 50% from three. They held North Texas to just 40% from the floor, 30% from three. Leading scorer for North Texas in this game was Javion Hamlet. The senior, 25 points, 8 for 16 from the field, 2 of 5 from 3. And then only two other mean green players were in double figures. And those two guys were Marjorez McBride with 11 points and James Reese with 10. And only two other guys scored, and those were the other two starters. Zachary Simmons and Thomas Bell. They weren't able to get any points uh, from their bench. So that ends up making a big difference. Villanova cruises to an 84-61 win, and they are back in the Sweet 16. And on Monday, the Creighton Blue Jays also taking on a 13 seed, taking on Ohio, led by Jason Preston. And Ohio, they started off pretty strongly. They led by as many as five early on, but then oh, then Creighton just went berserk. Again, Creighton trailed 19-16 to 16 with about eight and a half left in the first half after Ben Roderick made a three, but Creighton closes the half on a 23-5 run to go up 15 heading into the locker room, and they would not look back. Ohio made some pushes, but Creighton just made it too big of a lead. It was insurmountable. I mean, it was a 21-point game just under five minutes into the second half after Marcus Zigorowski, who just had a tremendous game, knocked down a three, one of several that he hit in the game. Ohio, again, they would make a push. They got it down to a 13-point game on a couple of occasions, but Creighton just made enough plays down the stretch. Actually, no, they got it down to 10 with about... 312 remaining at 6555. Actually, I, I no 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 no. Forgive me for misspeaking again. Um so Ohio got it down to 9 at one point, but Creighton they made the plays down the stretch. Marcus Zigorowski making a pair. Uh, he had a jumper, made a couple free throws. Damian Jefferson stepped up and Creighton would pull away 
to a 72-58 win. Marcus Zigorowski was the star of this game. Looking like the preseason Big East Player of the Year, the player everyone was expecting him to be at the beginning of this season. 20 points, 7 for 16 from the field, 4 for 7 from 3. That was the game high. Overall, not bad from the floor, 45%. And just under 43% from behind the arc. All five Creighton starters were in double figures. 15 points from Damian Jefferson. 12 from Christian Bishop to go along with 15 rebounds. 6 for 7 from the field, 32 minutes played. Mitch Ballack knocked down a couple big trays, finished with 10 points, 5 boards, and 5 assists. And Denzel Mahoney only made one three-pointer on the game, finished 4 for 12, had 11 points. And then the only guy who scored off the bench, Sharif Mitchell, 10 minutes, 4 points. For Ohio, got to give credit to Creighton. They really kept Jason Preston in check. Preston played all 40 minutes, but they kept him to just 4 points. He did have 9 rebounds and 7 assists, but he was just 1 for 10 from the floor, 0 for 3 from behind the arc. Leading the way for the Bobcats, Dwight Wilson the third with 12 points and 9 rebounds, 5 for 8 from the field. McDay, that's London McDay by the way, he had 11 points and 2 assists, 4 for 14 from the field, 3 for 9 from 3. Ben Roderick, 10 points, 6 rebounds, 4 for 12 from the field, 2 of 8 from distance. And Ben Vanderplas, just one for six from three, three for 12 from the floor, just nine points, 10 rebounds. And then off the bench, Granger with four, Sears with eight. But Creighton, they are back. They are now in the Sweet 16 for the first time in program history since that Sweet 16 phase was first established back in 1975. They were part of the last 16 in 1974, but again, it was not a sweet 16 back then since the tournament only had 25 teams back then. So Creighton, they are out of the sweet 16 with a 14-point win, and John Fanta really said it best. They came together instead of letting their off-the-court issues, you know, with Coach McDermott and whatnot, they didn't let that bring them down. Matter of fact, it brought them together like Fanta said. So it's really funny that I asked Coach McDermott about how important experience would be in the NCAA tournament, and he was confident that his guys would shake off that blowout loss to Georgetown in the Big East final last week, and they shook it off really well. You know, they had to escape by UC Santa Barbara. I mean, they truly escaped. And you can make the argument that they really didn't deserve to win, but, you know, here they were winning that game. And then they beat a solid Ohio team by 14. So they have proven that they deserve to be in this Sweet 16. So Villanova, they will match up with top seed at Baylor and Creighton. They will match up with the top seed in their region, the undefeated 28-0 Gonzaga Bulldogs. I'll have my preview for both of those games a couple days from now on Friday. Uh, but uh, before I move on to the next segment, I have uh, recapping some of the other second round action. 
How about this? Four double-digit seeds in the Sweet 16, including two in one region. And those two, and, and those two were 12th seed Oregon State and 11th seed at Syracuse in the Midwest. Syracuse upsetting 3rd seed West Virginia, 12th seed Oregon State upsetting 4th seeded Oklahoma State, who, after Illinois went down earlier on Sunday to another Cinderella team, 8th seeded Loyola Chicago, and with ease, really, people thought Oklahoma State would become the new favorites in the Midwest, but they couldn't get the job done against the Beavers. Oregon State back in the Sweet 16 for the first time since 1982, which, by the way, it was vacated, but it still happened. This isn't Men in Black, and they have the memory thing where they click it, and all of a sudden you just forget everything. It still happened, people. Like, that's why I'm not really a fan of vacating, uh, you know, championships, wins, tournament runs, all that. And, of course, I think the biggest story, Oral Roberts, the 15th seed in the South region. They beat Ohio State in overtime in their first round game. And then in the second round, they come back from down double digits in the second half to take down 7th seed Florida, 81-78. And, again, the story, Amis and O'Banner, the dynamic duo for Oral Roberts that has carried them this far. Getting them now to the Elite Eight. And then Rutgers. They had a five-point lead with a minute to go. They were up five in the final minute of play. Actually, no. Hold on. Actually, you know, if I look at it now, Rutgers was up nine with under five minutes to go. Their win probability at that point was 90.2%. And then it just started falling apart little by little. And then Houston got a big, big, they got big plays down the stretch. It started with Dejan Giroux making a three to make it 58-53 with 4.11 to go. Quentin Grimes with a three, cut it to two with 2.39 to go. Rutgers, you know, when they took a four-point lead with about two minutes to go, like, you're thinking, like, okay, I think Rutgers got this. They didn't. And I think a lot of people were saying that they were playing not to lose rather than them playing to win, and it showed because Traymond Mark got a huge three-point play with 24 seconds to go. He got a put put back to tie it at 60, and the free throw to put them up 61-60. to 60. And then Rutgers turned it over right after that, and Marcus Sasser made a pair of free throws, and Rutgers could not score. They got a good look at the buzzer for the game-tying three, but it was not to be Houston winning 63-60. to So Rutgers, they were, they were so close to their first Sweet 16 appearance since 1979, they could taste it. 
but Houston snatches it from them in the final minutes, closing the game on a 14-2 run to win 63-60. Houston back in the Sweet 16 for the second consecutive tournament. So now it looks like they might be the favorites to advance to the Final Four. And they actually have the fourth highest odds to win the NCAA tournament right now, according to Caesar Sportsbook. Uh, Gonzaga at plus 150, Baylor plus 400, and Michigan is plus 700. And let, so let's talk about the Big Ten, by the way. Rutgers wasn't the only team to lose in the second round. Illinois, a top seed, lost in the second round in dominant fashion against Loyola Chicago. Wisconsin lost in the second round to Baylor, but that was expected. Rutgers lost to Houston in a game they probably should have won. And then on Monday, it only got worse. Iowa, the two seed, got blown out by seventh seed Oregon. And then 10th seed Maryland got blown out by Alabama. The only Big Ten team to win in the second round was Michigan, the top seed in the East who beat LSU by eight. So Big Ten sent nine teams to the NCAA tournament. They are the only one standing. So the Big Ten combined is seven and eight in the NCAA tournament. The Big East, by the way, they sent less than half of what the Big Ten sent. They sent four teams. Two of them are in the Sweet 16. The Big Ten has one. So, humble brag for the Big East having more Sweet 16 teams than the Big Ten. Just saying. So, uh, the other major headlines from Monday. Again, Oregon, they crushed Iowa 95-80 in a real track meet and a game that ended up being Luca Garza's final game in his prestigious career at Iowa. His number 55 will never be worn again in the black and gold. Gonzaga, they withstood a an early strong run by Oklahoma to start the game, but Gonzaga, they shot the ball well. Believe it or not, they had their lowest, lowest shooting performance of the entire game in this game. Uh, of the entire season in this game. Just 49%. 49%. For most people, that's a great night. But that's their worst shooting performance of this entire season. But Gonzaga, they stay unbeaten. They're 28-0 now, heading to the Sweet 16 to take on, like I said, Creighton. And then Kansas. They are out in the second round for the second straight tournament. Not only that, they got smacked by USC, 85-51, so that means we got an all-pack 12 matchup in the Sweet 16 in the West region this weekend as USC will take on Oregon, which should be a real fun matchup between the teams that finished 1-2 and two in the Pac-12 standings this year. And the Pac-12, a tremendous tournament for them so far. Only one team has lost so far, and that was 5th seed Colorado, who were bounced in the second round by Florida State. So the Pac-12 forced teams in the Sweet 16 out of the five they sent. And they have a combined record in the NCAA tournament of 10-1. and UCLA's 3-0. 
USC, Oregon, and Oregon State are 2-0. and And Colorado went 1-1. and They beat Georgetown before losing to Florida State. So your Sweet 16 is set. But um, coming up next, I talked about the firing of Steve Wojciechowski over the weekend. But joining me next to provide insight as to why that happened and how it happened and where Marquette goes from there and, of course, what Wojo's legacy at Marquette should be is going to be Alan Bukowski, uh, trusted Marquette blogger. I had him on for the Big East Roundtable back in November. Uh, he's going to join me to provide all of that insight as to how and why Wojo got fired and, of course, where they go from here and what his legacy will be. That is coming up next here on the Igloo, so don't go anywhere. Welcome back inside the Igloo. On the last episode, I touched on uh, some of the off-court news. DePaul has fired Dave Lato. Their coaching search uh, is only beginning. And then Marquette, uh, in more of a surprising move, uh, they decided to part ways with their head coach of the last seven years, Steve Wojciechowski. And joining me to break down that firing as, and provide insight as to why it happened, um, why it maybe deserved to happen, and where they go from here in terms of who succeeds Wojo. Uh, he wrote a great article along with uh, the guys from Anonymous Eagle, Paint Touches and Crack Sidewalks, uh, Marquette uh, blogs that are you know really in-depth. And it was a really great analytical writing article on why this had to happen. Uh, one of the authors of that, and uh, I had him on earlier this year as part of the Big East Roundtable, Alan Bukowski. Alan, uh, welcome back, my man. Thank you. It's good to be back inside the igloo, Tim. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, so, I mean, let's get right down to it. I mean, this Marquette uh, move to fire Wojo, I mean, this was a move that you and, you know, the other blogs that I mentioned, they were calling for it, and the numbers – didn't lie and had a great case as to why he should have been fired. Um, were you personally surprised that Marquette actually pulled the trigger and, you know, provide some insight as to, you know, what went into um, the process of actually pulling that trigger and parting ways with Wojo? So I, I would say that flabbergasted is probably the best word that comes to mind. Um, we, the three blogs have a group chat and we use that for a lot of the takes that we really can't put out publicly. Um, you know, the things that you want to say and you want to vent about, but you're not going to make it public knowledge. And for the past few years, we've all been writing articles about the things that we see, whether it's the, uh, Defense not being up to snuff, the inability to create turnovers or protect the ball on the other end, the way that the team completely collapsed in 2019 to not win the Big East, in 2020 to fall from a four seed to the bubble. And even this year, when we went from eight and six and lost six of seven for the third time in third season in a row, it just we've been venting about these things and feel like at least from the administration perspective, there was no change, no impetus for change. The coaching staff, the coaching staff didn't seem to see the things that we were seeing. And it was baffling why the same lineups kept getting ran out. 
that was what convinced us all to kind of put this article together. And what was surprising about it was, so we had this plan to put it out on Thursday on the first day of the tournament when you're going to have the most attention on college basketball. So we put it out. Uh, we got a lot of feedback, a lot of interest, a little bit of criticism because anytime you put something out that's criticizing a coach, the defenders are going to come after you. And uh, then the next morning, one of the guys in the group chat just wrote in all caps, Goodman. And at this point, uh, Rob Doster had already tweeted out our article from the Field of 68 Media Network. Uh, we had gotten retweets from some of the Marquette media people who are nationally known. And locally, it was being picked up. The local ESPN was pushing it as well. So when I saw Goodman, my first thought was, oh, wow, Jeff Goodman retweeted our article. So I go to Jeff's uh, Twitter. Then no, he was, which was not at all something that we saw coming that we expected. Uh, we even had a follow-up piece planned that was going to talk about what Wojo could do to save his staff and save his job and turn things around from an analytic perspective. And instead we ended up putting the kibosh on that because you know, what's the point of talking about the plan forward with Wojo if Wojo's somewhere else? As far as the way it developed from the Marquette end, um, from what I understand, there were a number of conversations between Marquette Athletic Director Bill Scholl and Steve Wojciechowski about the makeup of his staff. And if you look back to when Wojo first came in, he had another Duke guy with him in Chris Carwell. He had a recruiting expert in Brett Nelson who had played at Florida. And he had a former head coach in Mark Phelps who had been at Drake. And as his staff developed, you would see that guys would go out and when they were replaced, they were being replaced by younger and younger coaches or just people that had been with Wojo from the start. The Staff, as it is made up right now, Dwayne Killings just got the Albany job. The only two assistant coaches that are left are Jake Prasuti, who was a former player at Syracuse that started as a grad assistant and worked his way up, and Justin Ganey, who started at Marquette as director of basketball operations in uh, Wojo's early days, did leave to Arizona for a little bit, but then came back. So these are very much Wojo loyalists, I think, that weren't going to challenge his way of thinking. And we've seen success with the women's program in that Coach Megan Duffy is willing to have those different voices in the room, willing to have people to challenge her own assumptions and give her the information in a way that they can teach it to the players to maximize their efforts. And when, you know, you're in a league and the only team that you're looking up at is UConn, it's a pretty good place to be in. On the other hand, the men's staff wasn't doing that. And everything that I've heard is Bill Scholl talked to Steve Wojciechowski, said, I want you to make some changes with your staff. Wojo said no. Then our article came out and 
I know that it's circulated around the board of trustees. Um, and I, I don't know that it was the impetus behind Wojo leaving. I doubt that's the case, but I do think it moved the timetable up. The board of trustees was originally set to meet this upcoming Monday. They had an emergency meeting on Thursday, the night our article came out. Uh, the next morning, calls from what I'm from what I understand, Marquette made calls to boosters uh, looking to raise funds in the event that they had to have a big expense all of a sudden. And uh, then an hour later, Goodman reported that Wojo was gone. So I think it was a it was a pretty quick action. I think that uh, if anything, we have made we may may have made it a little bit easier because suddenly Bill Scholl had an article that he could show to the board of trustees and show to the boosters and said, this is what I've been seeing for years. This is an easy way for you to see it and read it. And this is the direction I want to move forward in because Steve isn't going along with what our plan is and the improvement plan that I have for him. Yeah. And I mean, obviously it all kind of unfolded kind of really fast, you know, like, you know, it's like, well, you know, you know, Ron Burgundy's in like, you know, that escalated quickly. <laughs> like it, it kind that of did over the, in the span of what, you know, between 24 and 48 hours. I, uh, the, the first thing that I did when I saw Goodman's tweet was I quote tweeted it with that exact phrase. Well, that escalated quickly. I, I did not see that coming. Um, and, and of course in classic Marquette fashion, it was on a Friday right before the games tipped off so that they could make sure that it didn't become too big of a media event. They're, uh, they're real good at the Friday news dumps. <laughs> yeah. So obviously um, when it comes to Wojo, I mean, the biggest point that you guys made was the fact that there's this underperformance and we talk about the fact that, you know, look at the, some of the players he's brought in. I mean, Marcus Howard, greatest scorer in the history of Marquette. Andrew Rousey, volume three-point shooter, who, by the way, is a proven winner. He's won at TBT. He's a G League champion now. Um, yep. And, I mean, you – and not to mention, I mean, you have other guys that have been successful and guys who have gotten an all-Big East not. I mean, Sam Hauser was an all-Big East selection and, you know, was a candidate for ACC Player of the Year this year, uh, which was surprising in itself. But I think, I think a lot of us saw that in him. Uh, so – what was the most baffling part to you about, you know, when you were doing your research about how underwhelming uh, Wojo's performance was as a head coach? I think that what really has stood out to us is the defense. You have this guy who was defensive player of the year when he was at Duke. And that really seemed to be what his calling card was going to be was the defensive end. And it just never came together. I mean, we, we saw some of the worst defenses we've ever seen at Marquette and the explanations that were there was, well, you've got two short guards. What do you expect? And then it was, well, you've got one short guard. What do you expect? And then, well, you know, you've got these, you know, the slow housers who aren't quick enough. And no matter what the changes were to the roster, the defense remained simply not good enough. You know, and you, you talk about the recruiting aspect. Marquette has brought in four McDonald's All-Americans. Two of them were brought in by Wojo. We had Henry Ellenson, who was a one and done, and that team didn't even make the NIT. And then we had Dawson Garcia this year, who, you know, I would still argue should have been Big East Player of the Year, but 
you know, kudos to Posh Alexander. Freshman is, of the year. Freshman of the year. I'm sorry. Freshman of the year. Uh, Posh Alexander's team had better results. And a lot of the time people end up looking at team results when it comes to individual awards. But ultimately we had a losing record. And no matter how good Dawson was, it wasn't enough to get us above 500. And, you know, like you said, there were a lot of other recruiting wins. I mean, DJ Carton was a kid who was that blind four or five star kid who comes in here and you expect to be a player right away. Um, you know, Justin Lewis was a four star. There's, there's four and high three stars all over the roster. And despite that, the results simply haven't been there. I mean, seven years with no NCAA wins is just too long. We're, we're coming up on 3,000 days since the last time Marquette won an NCAA tournament game. That's, that's a long drought for a program that right now spends more money on basketball than any other team in the Big East, Villanova included. It just, you've got to get results. He didn't get them. Yeah, and I think, you know, like, I think, you know, if you look, you know, you know, what was strike one, strike two, strike three. To me, strike one was losing out on the Big East regular season title in 2019. And, you know, if if they had just, you know, even if they went three and one or two and two down the stretch, they would have won the regular season title and been right up there to be a Big East tournament champion and gotten, if they maybe pushing a two seed, maybe, probably three or four pushing a two. Um, It doesn't go that way. They lose the final four only beat St. John's in the BET, lose to Seton Hall in the semis in a game that I don't think any of us want to talk about because of how disgusting. <laughs> no, no, we, we can avoid that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I will not be naming any names who made that horrible. <laughs> James Freedy, sorry. <laughs> um, and then refed in the final four. <laughs> and made a big call, which, I mean, if you look at it, technically – it was the right call against uh, Auburn again with a game against UVA, but I mean, I digress, mm-hmm. but obviously, you know, <laughs> after that Seton Hall loss, they get whacked by John Morant and Murray state in the first round of the NCAA tournament. So, I mean, that's strike yeah. one strike two, you're seven and four in conference. You're 17 and six overall. You're tied for second in the conference and you lose six of seven to end the regular season, including losing to the bottom two teams in the league in the last two mm-hmm. games of the year at DePaul at St. John's and your only win was against a Georgetown team that was depleted. And like, and I think they ended up losing, I think seven in a row to end that season. So if there was anyone colder than Marquette at the end of the season, it was Georgetown. Um, yeah. So obviously, I mean, when you have a guy that's as prolific as a, of a score as Marcus Howard, you cannot afford to lose six of seven down the stretch. And like you said, they were a borderline four seed uh, for the NCAA tournament mm-hmm. after national marketing smacking Butler, but yet they played themselves down to the bubble. So that's strike two. And I think obviously they won another big skate where they lost six to seven, but I think you and I agree on this. The final nail in the coffin losing the way they not only, not just losing to Georgetown, but it was the way in which they lost to Georgetown in the big East tournament. It certainly was. And especially after we saw those encouraging signs, we, you know, we, we get the win over Butler. We go down to North Carolina in that unexpected game and really put a thumping on the Tar Heels. I mean, it, it looked like they were starting to figure it out. They win three of four and, you know, it, it wasn't a tourney bid, but it was at least something to build on. It was something to say, all right, we're going to walk out of this season 
with a reason to hold our heads high. And then we end up getting hit by a truck and, you know, Patrick Ewing is driving it. A guy who, for the most part, Bojo's had his number over the past few years. Um, the exceptions being the ones that really mattered. It was the Georgetown game at the end of 2019. They came into our house on senior day and end up beating us when we knew Villanova had already lost and we could have clinched the Big East title. We had squandered three chances to win the Big East title. They hand us one more to a Georgetown team that really wasn't that good and they still couldn't get it done. And yeah, the, the way that game ended, you just, you can't roll over like that with your season on the line when, you know, everybody on our side of the bracket is thinking we've got a chance you know, you at least have to put a little bit of effort into that one. And it just wasn't there. We just didn't see it. Yeah. I mean, when you put up 14 points and a half against a Georgetown team that mind you gave up 98 in their last game, how does that happen? Uh, If I, uh, if I could answer that, I would have to either be, you know, some sort of defensive genius. Um, it, it was w- one of the worst offensive performances I have seen in Marquette history. Uh, it reminds me of a tourney game that we had against Michigan State where we just came out completely lackluster. But uh, 14 points, I just, I, yeah, I, I had no answers. I had no response. Um, DJ Carton was the only guy that seemed to have any effort or energy and he was still you know turning the ball over all over the place which you know was another one of Wojo's calling cards while he was here it it was frustrating and I think that that was the moment where it was like all right you you need to make changes you need to get some experience on your staff you need to get some people that can turn all the technology we have into wins and he was unwilling to do that uh in our chat today, we were discussing what the value of a couple wins a year is. And if you give Wojo two more wins, there's a chance that he makes the NCAA tournament in 2016 and is earning tourney credits for the Big East. They probably would have been a you know five or six seed the year that they beat Villanova and had a chance at going to the second round and at least getting a little bit more Tourney credits again, you know, every credit is worth millions of dollars for the league. In 2018, they would have made the tournament. 2019, they would have won the Big East. In, you know, 2020, they would have been in much better shape. And if he did the things that he needed to do just to get one or two more wins a year, it would have been radically different and he would still be our head coach. Uh, He wasn't willing to. And now we're looking. Yeah, and you know, like looking back, I feel like in over these past years of the Wojo era, I mean, 2015. I mean, obviously, you're going to have those growing pains, and there's going to be a lot of tough losses along the way. And but I think if there are any big losses that really stand out, I think you have several DePaul losses that stand out. (laughs) Several, 16 at home on Billy Garrett Jr.'s and one, which he had the. Biggest knack for that. I don't know because he did it again the year after that against Providence. I, I, I will say Luke Fisher did not touch him on that play. 
if you go back and watch it, Fisher actually turned away and they still called the ad one. And yeah, that was a killer. Absolute killer. Uh, and then I think 17, you didn't really have any of that. I mean, I mean, I mean, Georgetown, when you lost to them, I mean, they were still in tournament contention in, in a way. Mm-hmm. St. John's yeah. was a very good, I mean, they lost them in the garden, but St. John's was really good. They had a winning record at home that year. And then in yeah. eight, and then in 18, I mean, they'd come off a win at Creighton. Like you look at the last four games, like we're in good shape. Like we could win out. And then they go to Chicago yeah. and lose to DePaul. And that was DePaul's only home win of the entire conference season. The reason that uh, we have the hashtag DLTD, which is don't lose to DePaul, is because in Wojo's first few years, every year that we lost to DePaul, we didn't go to the tournament. It, it was that simple. Lose to DePaul, don't make the tournament. And he showed a remarkable knack for losing to DePaul, which is something that is really tough when they've been a rival, not just here, but, you know, back to Conference USA, uh, back a long time. We've been rivals back to the Al McGuire days. It's, you know, this is the team, and they're down right now. You can't lose those games. You just can't. Yeah, I mean, and there were several, I mean, and in 19-2, you want to talk about, you know, the, that, that skid to end the season. I mean, I mean, I think the big point, the big one was giving up an 18, nothing run at Seton hall uh, in the second to last game of the year. I mean, how do you go from being up nine with six and a half minutes left to losing by nine and not scoring a single point during that stretch? The, uh, the most amazing thing about that is if you look at that game, as well as the Creighton game and the Villanova game in the last five minutes of those three games, I believe we were outscored 46 to eight. So 15 minutes of three games, any of which would have clinched the big East title. And in crunch time, you get outscored 46 to eight. I mean, giving, giving up that many points in that span is bad enough in and of itself. I mean, 46 points in 15 minutes is a lot, but to not score either during that time, uh, it, it was absolutely baffling. And we had a lead in the Georgetown game coming down the stretch too. Every one of those games, Marquette was in position to win for the better part of 30, 35 minutes. And every game we lost. And it's, it, it was tough. That's yeah. all there is to it. It's tough. I, I mean, and, and not to mention, and, and then in, and then in twenty, you know, they have they had a lot of big time wins. You know, they crushed Nova at home. They crushed Butler at home. I mean, Creighton was a bit of a thorn in their side, but I mean, that, that I mean, with just how explosive they were. You, there's not really much you could do. But you you guys remember what Tyshawn Alexander could do defensively too. I mean, he locked up Miles Powell and Marcus Howard like it was nobody's business. He, incredible defensive player to go along with an offense that just didn't stop. Yeah. Yeah. And, and obviously, you know, to lose the last two games of the year at DePaul in a game where you absolutely had a shot to win and DePaul didn't even have Paul Reed who was their best all around player. I mean, Charlie Moore was their (laughs) leading scorer, but Paul Reed was their best all around player and ended up being a second round pick. And then you lose at St. John's in a game where you go down 19 at the half and you need to score 58 second half points just to have a shot at winning. 
I, I feel like this is uh, the reverse of playing all the hits. Um, and it really encapsulates what, for me, the Wojo era has been. And you have those moments where you have the highs. You know, we had the, the win over number one Villanova. We had a big win at Providence when they were a top 10 team. Uh, this year, the wins over Wisconsin and Creighton when they were both ranked in the top 10. You have all of these really big, really exciting wins that get you up and get you excited and then collectively fall on your face over and over and over again. It's it, Wojo was Lucy with the football. And this year was just another example of it where, you know, you think, okay, this is finally the time. Eh, not so fast. So, do you, like, ultimately, do you think that will be his legacy at Marquette falling falling flat in this space, you know, when it mattered? I do. And what I really hope, I, per, from a personal perspective, I like Wojo. I like the kids he brought in. I think that he represented Marquette well. I hope that he ends up learning from what happened here over his tenure. Um, I think that spending his playing career at Duke and only leaving for a year before he came back and then being an assistant at Duke for, you know, 15 years, I don't think he really knew another way. And I, I hope for his sake, wherever he ends up next, he understands that he has to diversify his strategies and the way that he does things and take a little bit more input from the people that are working for him because it, we kept doing the same thing over and over again and kept ending up with the same sort of results. You know, it's, it's not a surprise where we ended up. Yeah. I mean, what you said, you know, that's literally the textbook definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So exactly. now the question is, if you're the Marquette administration, where do you go from here? Because I mean, obviously there have been some names that have been thrown out there. I think the most, the most absurd one I've heard is Dwayne Wade. I'm like, dude like let's pop the brakes on that i mean that's a pipe dream to get Dwayne wade to coach at marquette i also don't think that i want to see someone who has never recruited who has never coached at any level i i mean i went to school with Dwayne wade i absolutely love Dwayne wade i realize i'm dating myself a little bit here um but wade isn't someone that i think you would want to bring in to be a coach at this point if they wanted to bring him in as some sort of assistant and he really had interest in it then maybe you look into that but right now i think what marquette needs we can't afford another hire like wojo where we don't have any success for the next five six seven years we need someone who can come in who can win right away um i mean my pipe dream was the guy who goes to the final four in the first four years of his career every time Rick Pitino, but I know for Marquette's administration, considering his past, he's a non-starter. Yeah, and more more uh, importantly, like Pitino seems very content to be at Iona because I, I, I guess he's mm -hmm. kind of like gotten tired of being of having that kind of spotlight being at, at a high major program. So I mean, more power to him. I mean, at this point, like you know, if he wants to lay low, like good for him. That's his prerogative. Yeah, I know there was uh, some interest. There was mutual interest on both sides with John Beeline. I know he's also looking at the Indiana job. Um, what I'm led to believe is that Beeline has a 
condition for any job that he takes, which requires having his uh, son on staff. And I don't think that that's a circumstance that you want to go for. The, I mean, there's already the issue with the thugs comment at Cleveland, which I think would make recruiting a little bit harder for him than it was when he was at Michigan and trying to bring in his son who has a checkered past as well. It just, it's not the sort of thing that Marquette, which has prided itself on a clean program is going to go for. Uh, as far as the names that I think are more realistic right now, I know Porter Moser is getting a lot of talk. Um, I'm a little bit hesitant on Moser just because he hasn't recruited at this level. And he's such a system coach. Uh, the, the slow down kind of system that he runs, it can work, but I think it's better suited at a level like the Missouri Valley. And while it worked for Bo Ryan, and to an extent, I guess you could say works for Jay Wright at Villanova, Jay Wright has shown an ability to get dynamic scores and to create a dynamic offense, which we really haven't seen out of Moser yet. Um, if he ends up being the guy, I'll absolutely support him, but I'm not sure that we've seen enough of a track record with him and his track record before the final four certainly wasn't good enough that you would think about it. Uh, another game I've name I've heard a lot is Dennis Gates. Uh, he's the current coach of Cleveland state started his career as a grad assistant at Marquette under Tom Crean and really spurred a quick turnaround to Cleveland state. Um, if you look at a lot of his advanced numbers, they don't look great. But when you compare him to the rest of his league, you consider that he was the lead recruiter for Leonard Hamilton at Florida State. And he's going to, you know, he I think he'd be able to recruit right away. He'd be able to bring in the kind of athletes you need to compete in the Big East and would play a style that would work. Um, he's a guy that I really like. Uh, the one other name that I've been hearing quite a lot lately and both terrifies and excites me is Shaka Smart. Okay. <laughs> and as everybody knows, Marquette fans had a, quite a public flirtation. He agreed to our job, then he pulled out and a lot of people felt jaded after that circumstance. Uh, the rumors out of Texas right now are that they wanted to fire him last year. The AD that hired him is no longer there, but that the 24 million they paid to make their football coach go away was too much for them to spend another 10 or 11 million to make Shaka go away the same year in the middle of COVID. and a lot of university pushback that even though they were a three seed this year, the way that it ended to Abilene Christian is not what they were hoping for and that he might end up being on the outs at Texas. And considering they looked at Marquette before and he's from uh, Madison, Wisconsin, about a 60 minute drive from Marquette's campus, that there might be some interest there. Um, 
I love him as a recruiter. He's a great defensive coach. I think that a lot of what's happened at Texas is a bit of bad luck. He, you know, had the cancer situation with Andrew Jones, where suddenly you lose your best player. Um, Jackson Hayes was a sub 100 recruit who ended up being so good. He was a one and done. And suddenly you lose this building block that you were counting on. They have lost all three tournament games that they played in while he was there. But one of them was on a half court buzzer beater. One of them was losing on free throws with 1.4 seconds left. And the other was losing as an underdog in overtime, you know, three bounces go the other way and he's got three NCAA wins just as easily as he has three losses. Yeah. And not to mention the Nevada game in 18, they were up, I think 14. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That was, I mean, it, it was a game that you really thought they were going to win. And you know, and again, 18, that was that same bracket that Loyola came out of, you know, could, could, Shaka have ended up going to the final four out of that bracket as a 10 seed because that bracket completely fell apart. You know, the, I mean, that was the one where Virginia lost in the first round to UMBC. It, everybody fell out and suddenly the road was paved. You know, it, he, he had the opportunity. It didn't work out. I would be all in on him if he's interested, but man, I am worried about getting heartbroken again. I, uh, <laughs> 2014 that was that was a rough 24 hours from the moment where we thought oh my gosh shock is coming to not so much he's staying at vcu so it'll be interesting to see who they go with from what i've heard i think moser is the leading candidate but who knows how much longer he's gonna be coaching for and i don't know if marquette wants to wait until i think at the earliest march 29th to make a hire because UI, uh, I'm sorry, Loyola's next game is the 28th. Yeah, so that's that, a little ways off. That's yeah, that's correct. Uh, and that should be, I mean, obviously, I mean, this second time in four years you've taken the Ramblers to the Sweet 16. I mean, it, it, and you don't really see that at a at a Valley school. The only other one you did mm-hmm. was Wichita State with Greg Marshall, and now, and now Porter Moser's done that. I mean, obviously, before that he wasn't all amazing but i mean just if you just you know a lot of times you know it's like oh what have you done for me lately i mean most done a lot lately and i mean but credit i will have to give credit because i really believe this divine intervention courtesy of sister jean <laughs> yeah it's a uh, it's been a pair of incredible runs for them um the one big difference that i see with wichita state is if you look at their efficiency after Greg Marshall went to the final four, he had a stretch of eight years where Wichita was a top 30 team on Ken Pop. And Moser went to the final four, then had two sub 100 years. And this year they're awesome. That's an absolutely fantastic team. Uh, You know, I can't take anything away from him, but after uh, watching Wojo, where basically all of his success came from having one stud guy and even still maybe underachieving a little bit. I wonder how much of Moser's success is Cameron Crutwig being just that much better than the rest of the Valley. Um, you know, I'll support whoever they end up going with and it was definitely time for a change. Uh, but it, every single candidate that we have, I feel like I can prop them up on one side and tear them down on the other. It's it's the nature of the the fear of a coaching search and not knowing what it's going to end up with in 
two, gotcha. three years. So, so basically your prognosis is Marquette will have a new head coach by the end of this month. I think by the end of the month. Um, and if, if not for Moser winning today, I think it would have been by the end of the week with uh, the way the transfer market is going and the uh, current recruiting class. I think they want to do everything they can to keep, especially Jonas Adu, uh, who's a top 40 center that blew up over the course of the past year. I think they're a little bit worried about him decommitting because he never signed a letter of intent. So I think they want to get it done sooner rather than later. I would say two weeks at the most. All right. Well, Alan, really appreciate the perspective. I know that this is a, it's been a crazy couple of uh, days for you, you know, obviously with the article blowing up the way that did, of course uh, the result of it being, you know, I mean, I'm not saying you're responsible for the firing of Wojo, Wojo, but you, you, you happen to be, your article happened to be a point of persuasion to lead the administration to making that decision. Uh, but obviously, you know, I really appreciate the insight. And I, I think you and I are both really itching to see who Marquette's going to go with um, uh, as their new head coach over the next week or so week, maybe two weeks. I'm definitely looking forward to it. And uh, as, as a season ticket holder, I know a lot of us are looking for a reason to cheer again. So hopefully we'll get back into the arena and have somebody to, Give us an exciting team to watch next year. Alan, appreciate the time. Look forward to bringing you back on the Igloo sometime very soon, probably to discuss the new hire, whoever that may be. Sounds good. Thanks for the time, Tim. Have a good one. So that's a wrap on this episode of the Igloo. Thank you again to Alan Bukowski for providing some perspective on the firing of Steve Wojciechowski. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, if Alan's predictions might come true, uh, if any of those high-ranking candidates for the Marquette job if they end up getting it. Uh, But, you know, when it comes to these coaching searches, they take a while. They might have a guy one second and then he'll back out at the last second. You never know. So I think all of us are really intrigued to see what's going to happen with the hiring process and who Marquette ends up getting. So, on the next episode of the Igloo coming out on Friday, Sweet 16 preview as Creighton and Villanova gear up for the Sweet 16. Villanova taking on the number two overall seed, the Baylor Bears, and Creighton going up against the number one overall seed in the tournament, undefeated 28-0 Gonzaga. So, I'll preview that and, of course, look ahead to the rest of the Sweet 16 on the next episode of the Igloo Uh, coming out again on Friday. So thank you again for tuning in, and I will catch you next time here on the Igloo.